Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 126th show, and today's guest is Cassandra Bailey, co-author of Pay Attention. It was a fabulous book. I've known Cass for a really long time. She's one of the best in the country at PR and marketing, super smart, so I know you guys are going to really enjoy listening to her today. So Cass, let's start off with you just giving them a little bit about your professional background. Thank you, Mark, and thank you for having me on the show. Congratulations on show 126. That is a remarkable accomplishment. Mark, I think we actually met maybe 20 years ago when I was working. Yeah, I was working at Innovation Philadelphia at the time. It was an economic development organization really focused on supporting technology-based organizations and companies, startups, venture-backed, angel-backed, et cetera. And at that time, I was working um, in marketing communications. My degree, though, is in international politics economics and philosophy. And what I say to people was, I think that I wanted to be a lawyer at the time. That would have been a terrible career path for me. I'm certainly happier I went this way. But what was great about getting that degree is that it taught me to think and write and learn and listen. And those are the critical parts of my job today. So I started working at Ketchum Public Relations in DC. Um, I went to Innovation Philadelphia. I then started working with another PR agency and that was really my first time working fully in PR and then started this company, Slice Communications after that. Yeah, and you've done really, really well, even through the ups and downs of the crazy economy and how people view this kind of work, which is tough. They don't really give it the full value that they should, and it's absolutely necessary. So why did you write this book, and how, as a marketer PR expert, did you pick this title for the book? I started writing this book in my mind many years ago, um, and I had written a series of smaller eBooks and white papers and that sort of thing. The the writing always came naturally to me. I would sit down and just start writing and at the end of the day have an eBook or a white paper. Um, And then from there, recognized that maybe there was an opportunity to write a full book. It had always been a goal of mine. Um, I gave a talk. There was a woman there who worked for a publishing company. She saw my talk and she said, Cass, this talk could be a book. And I was like, oh, I don't know. Like right now, writing a book seems like a lot. I have a young daughter and the business had a lot going on, but she convinced me that now is the time to write the book. I'm very, very fortunate that uh, Dana Schmidt, who is my co-author and also the chief strategy officer at Slice Communications, she has a background in writing and actually a master's from NYU in writing. And so working with her and collaborating with her, the, the first book, Pay Attention, came together. Uh, the idea of pay attention actually came from a former CFO uh, from for our company. We were having a strategic retreat and we're talking about like what makes us different, what makes Slice different and why do we exist as a company? And he actually took a break, came back into the room and he's like, attention, it's all about attention, right? Like we exist to get people to pay attention. And that's how the title of the book came to be. Well, I think it's a great uh, uh, title because it gra- grabs your attention by telling you, pay, pay attention here. So I think that's fantastic. You start the book mentioning that companies focus on what they want to communicate and not what audiences want to hear. Seems simple enough. Why does that happen and what should a business do? A lot of time businesses are so self-focused. They put a tremendous amount of time and energy and, and founders in particular do this. They want to tell the world what they believe. They want to tell the world why they're doing what they're doing. They want to tell the world that they're great or in a lot of cases that they're better. And so their marketing initially is entirely focused on that. What are we going to tell people? What do I want to say? What do we want to say? And you can understand, right? Like a lot of people who are entrepreneurs, and Mark, you know so many of them, um, there's a lot of ego that comes with it initially. Like you have to believe it and you want to tell other people so that they believe it as well. And what I've been saying to many people for years is that marketing in a lot of cases is about what you want to say. Communications 
which is different, though it sits often under the umbrella of, of marketing, is about what they want to hear. It's about a back and forth. It's about a conversation. And what you see is that companies, as they mature in their operational maturity and their marketing maturity, start to focus much more on comms than just on what I want to say or what I want people to know. And what we want to help companies do is, is start to change that mindset so that they experience that maturity and so that they're making deeper, more meaningful connections with their audiences because it, their mind shift changes. It becomes more empathetic. It's more about what they want to hear and less about what I want to say. Yeah, I think that you find so much of the marketing is not authentic, right? Especially, you know, when they want to market, like uh, attach themselves to an, a nonprofit like Alex's Lemonade Stand. Do they really care about Alex's Lemonade Stand? You know, and then it comes off as fake. And then that's, that's even worse. You know, they might as well have done nothing, right? you know, and then do something like that. Yeah. And I think a lot of times that's because somebody said somewhere, Hey, it would look really good for us if we were associated with a nonprofit rather than really thinking about how can I make a positive impact in my community for my customers and for my employees. And when you, when you pursue that line of thinking, how do I make the best impact? How do I help people? How do I make their lives or their businesses better? You tend to get more authentic communications. You're right. There are six audiences that matter. Who are they and why do they matter? Part of the reason that we wrote that chapter, Mark, is because when we start talking to people about marketing, they just think that there's one audience and the audience is client and customers, current clients and customers or prospective clients and customers. And those are important. But when we have more of a communications mindset, we identify that there are other audiences that are critical to helping the business or the organization grow because ultimately marketing communication should be about helping the company grow. So yes, you have your clients, your customers, and your prospects, right? They're super important. And in a lot of cases, a big part of your focus should be on them. But one of the things that we recognized over the past couple of years is the critical importance of employees, If you don't have enough employees or if you don't have the right employees, it doesn't matter how many clients and customers you have because you cannot fulfill the demand, right, without those employees. And so audience number two is pretty much always employees. And there's a section of the book and some writing we've done around employer brand communications because it's become such a critical part of marketing. Um, another audience that you need to consider are your investors or your funders or your donors, right? People who have the money. Because without that money, you're not going to be able to serve your clients and customers. You're not going to be enabled to hire your employees. And a lot of times that investor, that donor communication is left outside of marketing. It sits with the CEO or the CFO if if it's about investors, or it sits with the head of development if it's about donors for a nonprofit. And that's problematic because we want to be talking to those people in a way that's consistent and authentic. Another audience is your centers of influence. I talk with CEOs and other entrepreneurs all the time who say to me, well, Cass, we don't need marketing because we get all of our work through word of mouth. Well, where does that word of mouth come from, right? It comes from your centers of influence. And if you're able to invest in them from a marketing perspective, you're going to get a much better return on getting more word of mouth, more centers of influence, more referrals. Another audience is your partners. Um, And in particular, what we're talking about are maybe supply chain partners or joint venture partners, people that if you come together to do work together or to propose together or to respond to an RFP together, you're going to have a much better shot at getting that work. So you might want to... market to those partners in order to create trust, et cetera. And then the last audience, the one that um, gets the most questions is your competitors. Your competitors are a critical audience for a lot of reasons. Um, It's very clear that if you're trying to sell your company to a strategic buyer, your competitors would be an important audience because they would probably be the best buyers who give you the best valuation. But in other cases, you want to be the market leader. And so you really want the competitors to know that you are out there, you are leading, and so that they start to position themselves as chasing you. And so standing out ahead of your competitors and showing them that like you're doing things that they can't do is an important part or maybe an important part of your marketing strategy. So there are six, there are six audiences. By the way, that last one is really critical when you think about selling your business, because the best uh, return for you or the best, you know, the person's going to write the biggest check is a strategic buyer. It's not the private equity group. 
It's not uh, the public market. A strategic buyer will way overpay for you if they think you're that important uh, to them or just to get rid of you out of the competition because you've uh, made it so hard for them to be successful. So I think that one is one that they typically do forget all the time. And I think that's a great thing to go and mention. Well, and just two points on that, Mark. The first one is that, as you know, a lot of times you need to be marketing yourself for three to five years before you're acquired, like really positioning and cleaning up your business. And that means cleaning up your marketing as well and like really focusing it on where it needs to be. The second thing is a quick story. We worked with a services company in financial services and they brought us on to be their outsourced chief marketing officer. And we ran their social and we managed their partner PR firm and all of that really worked. Uh, They got acquired this year by a competitor to basically get them out of the market, right? Because they had such a loud voice, they were getting so much attention and this competitor wanted them gone, basically. They also wanted the benefit of all the marketing assets and the large marketing community that we had helped them develop. And so that's a great example of why marketing to your competitors is going to give you like growth and eventually a good exit. You know, and and when you mentioned about marketing to employees, I think that's absolutely critical because employees are attracted to places that they hear where all the best and brightest are. And when they go and see like advertising and marketing campaigns that resonate with them, they are attracted uh, to them, just like dating. And so they want to go and be a part of that success story. And if you're thinking to yourself, I want to make sure I just keep a straight funnel of the very best and brightest wanting to be on our team. I think uh, a lot of companies don't think about marketing per se. They just think about, well, if I offer more money or whatever it is, I'll attract them. But most people, especially really successful people, aren't just drawn by the money. You're right. They're drawn by culture, right? And the way to communicate culture is through marketing in a lot of cases, marketing communications, right? It should be focused on communicating what makes your culture great, why people want to be there. And then once somebody decides to join the team, that marketing doesn't end. Um, Quite often, and Mark, you and I were both at social media day this year where a representative from Hootsuite talked about employees. He was great. Yeah, he was great. And it talked about employee social advocacy. And so advocacy is about working with your employees to then promote the company to the world. And he shared some data and some statistics about the level of credibility that's created when your employees become your social advocates, about the level of trust, about the new audiences and the reach that you're able to gain when you're engaging your employees in that way. And so employee marketing and employee employer brand communications really goes from somebody first learning about you and thinking you're a great culture really through the day that hopefully they retire, right? When they've stayed with your company and been engaged all that time. And you have to live up to it or marketing won't do anything for you because all the great marketing you do is destroyed like that um, CEO who gave up his salary and was paying everybody a minimum of 70,000. It turned out he wasn't a good person as far as we know uh, until this plays out. But for his company, they took a tremendous hit. And I'm sure a lot of companies who were dealing with them are rethinking about, do they want to be associated with their company? Great marketing will never fix bad culture. Yeah. And we've had the opportunity on more than one occasion to go in and talk to companies who wanted employer brand communications, and we referred them to HR consultants or culture consultants or people who could do change management, because without that, the marketing would actually backfire. Yeah. So how do you define awareness? So awareness, quite simply, is the idea that people know that you exist. Because if they don't know that you exist, they can't do business with you. They can't invest in you. They can't come work with you. They need to know that you exist. And we know how memory works, right? Like they might know that you exist today and then completely forget about you a week from now. And so awareness is a treadmill that you always have to be on, creating it and reinforcing your awareness with people. Um, You want them to think of you, right? When they have a problem to solve or they have an ambition that they need to achieve or when they have a friend who's asking them for a referral, that's what awareness is about. People know that you exist. So how do you plan for getting in front of people who don't even know you exist? I mean, like, you know, every startup has that challenge, right? You know, nobody even knows about this product or service. I one time started an insurance product and the insurance company was backing me, gave me all these agencies to work with. And I said to them, 
okay, have any of them ever worked with a startup where they're selling an insurance product that no one ever heard of before? And none of them had. They were all still in Allstate or whatever. So, you know, this is really important. So how do you do that? The first question to ask is, who are these people? Who are the people whose attention and whose awareness you need first? Where, and most importantly, like, where do they get news and information? Because you want to meet them where they are. You want to say, okay, I know that they are worried about this. They're concerned about this. They have this aspiration. They have this, this goal. They have this ambition. You want to like really understand that first and then find out, do they go to conferences to find about find out about new tools and technology? Are they looking at e-newsletters? Are they part of associations or groups? Are they looking on LinkedIn? Are they Googling? Right? How do these people, the ones that are most important for you to get, how do they get news and information? Do they have centers of influence? Are there people that they listen to? You got to know that before you do any sort of work or investment in marketing communications. This goes back to the idea, Mark, that it's really about what they want to hear and less about what you want to say. You want to make sure that you're reaching them in a place where, where their ears are open, their eyes are open, that they're looking for something like you. And so doing that research and having those conversations and testing and trying a couple of things, you don't need to have all the answers today, but you need to know like what you're going to try and you need to have a pretty good database hypothesis in order to do that. So that's really where you start. And, you know, this this next question kind of follows up on that. When I'm selling and I think of the check writer, who's the check writer? Who's the actual user? Because they might not be the same. Who is the actual influencer that, you know, has the ear of the check writer and the user? How do you select the right tactics for whatever audience you're pursuing? Testing and trying. Testing and trying is really the only answer here. Um, you want to try something that maybe you can, uh, that's applicable or relevant to all three or all four of those groups, and then see like who responds and how do they respond. Then have some follow-up conversations. Well, why did that resonate with you? Why didn't it? And then just keep trying to learn. And then ultimately what you're going to do as your marketing communications matures is that you're going to have better segmentation based on experience and based on research. So you might be reaching out to one group on LinkedIn with a message about a pain-based message, but you might be reaching out to another group on Twitter um, or through email that is an education-based message. Like, here's how you learn, here's how you do something, here's how you try. And so you start with something that you think is applicable or really relevant to all of them and then segment over time. Question from the audience. What's the best strategy to determine who your target market actually is? Yeah, I love that question. So the first thing to think about is who are your best clients or customers or your best employees or your best investors or your best partners or centers of influence, those referral sources? Who are the, like even five, who are the five best that if you had 10 more of those or if you had a hundred more of those, your business would be growing in a way that made you feel super successful. So that's the first thing. Who are the ones that you already know? Now, you can have conversations with them. You can interview them. You can ask them questions. Or you can take a look at their LinkedIn profile. This is, this is an exercise that we do where we bring up their LinkedIn and we see, are they active or inactive? And if they are active, what are they active in? What are they talking about? And you can passively start to collect some of this information that's based on their demographics and psychographics that then you can apply to your marketing strategy. So find them. Who are the, who are the best? If you had five or 10 or 100 more of these, your business would grow in a way that makes you feel successful. So how often should you update and or change your marketing plan? Is that something you're doing quarterly, semi-annually, annually? How often should you be doing this? We recommend that you update your plan fully every year, but that you make small iterative changes every quarter. And what that does is enables you to, you know, really be thoughtful and go in, in depth and not, not be like too trigger happy in terms of changing your marketing. So going through and, and developing it every year gives you a little more vision and a more length and commitment to what you're doing and also gives you the ability to try and learn and inform that strategy moving forward. But every quarter you should be sitting down and saying like, what little, what have we learned and what little iterative changes can we make to optimize and improve it? So you should be planning annually and optimizing quarterly. You write about the five types of attention. Uh, what are they and are they all good for the company or the individual? I mean, I can imagine some of this is not good uh, for the company and individual, just like we mentioned that guy who's now been accused of sexual harassment 
after getting so much positive publicity uh, for giving up a salary and giving it to his employees. So I think there are two questions here. The first one is, what are the five types of attention, right? Awareness. People know that you exist. Connected attention is where you've said something and they've said, oh, I want to know more. Like they're connected to you. They're starting to form that little bond. They're not necessarily ready to buy, but they want to know more. Engaged attention is where they start to have a conversation with you, right? There's a back and forth. They are asking for quotes or pricing, or they're attending a webinar or an event. They're open to a sales pitch, right? Like this isn't, or they're commenting on a product post, or they're commenting on employee post, right? Like that sort of engaged attention is where they're starting to get involved. Converted attention is where they say, okay, I'm in right? Like I want to work for your company or I want to invest in you. I want to donate to you. I want to be your partner. Let's do this thing together. I want to be your customer. That's converted attention. Like they are in, they are part of your company now moving forward. And then the last type of attention is advocate attention. It's where they're using the attention that they're getting in order to get more attention for you. And what's beautiful about advocate attention is that it actually feeds itself and it feeds the other four types. So when you're getting advocate attention, you're also getting more awareness. You're getting more connected, more engaged, and more converted, thank- and more advocates thanks to it. It's, it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. In terms of the types of attention and when, when it's good and when it's not good, I, I there's that old saying that all good PR, all PR is yeah. good PR. Yeah, I don't think that's true necessarily. I think that when we are hyper-focused just on clients and customers, any attention is good attention, but think about employees, right? With your, if employees are your prime, your primary audience focus, um, bad attention can actually make it so that nobody wants to work with you. And your example is a good one. The same thing is true with investors. If your primary audience is investors and you're getting bad PR, who's going to continue to invest in you? And so I think that old adage really is a little too uh, myopic. And that when you're thinking about six different audiences instead of just one, you want to be more careful and you want to be more strategic with the types of attention that you're getting. Um, Another question from the audience. What's your favorite social media platform to use to attract your audience's attention? We 100% believe in meeting people where they are. So the answer to that is whatever your audience uses, that's my favorite platform. If you're in B2B and you're doing sales to other businesses, LinkedIn is where they are. It's where they get news and information. Uh, Mark, you and I were talking about NFTs in the metaverse. And if you're trying to attract audiences in that space, you probably want to be on Twitter or Discord or one of those. If you're really focused on hyper-local communications, you might want to be looking at Nextdoor, maybe Facebook. But the most important thing is that The platform is the platform. It's not the people. You should choose platform based on people and not the other way around. And Mark, if I can, we have a second book called Social Media is About People that really addresses that approach and answers that question that the audience just asked in a very different way. When's that book come out? It's out. Oh, all right. Well, we'll we'll bring it back. (laughs) (laughs) Might have a second part soon. So that would be great. Uh, Mm -hmm. In the book, you said marketing is a pretzel shaped and you talk about the sales pretzel. What do you mean by that? And I love pretzels. I love pretzels too. Um, I'm gluten-free now, but they still have good gluten-free pretzels. So think about how you buy, right, Mark? You learn about a new pair of shoes and you're like, huh, that's interesting. Now, some people will go into the store and they will buy those shoes right away. But for a lot of us, especially if they're expensive shoes, that's not the way that we interact with the brand. We say, okay, well, that's interesting. I'm going to go check it out. And you maybe like look for reviews on YouTube and then you go in the store, you try it on. You're like, oh, I'm not sure. Then you go back and like you check out their website and maybe you sign up for that 10% discount in order to, right, right. And in order to get that, but you don't buy the shoes just then. Then you get an email and you're like, oh, you know, I want to treat myself today. I'm going to go ahead and buy those shoes. There was no straight line there, Mark, right? Like it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go from awareness to, No, that's not how it works. People have very different purchasing paths and very different paths to to buying that product and then becoming an advocate for that product. So we have to understand and identify that like we're going to have to go with people on that journey. We're going to have to meet them at certain parts of that journey. And we cannot get frustrated with ourselves or with our marketers if there is not a clear straight line sales funnel. You write in B2B sales that buyers typically do 12 steps, uh, 12 research steps, which is a lot of research, Mm -hmm. and then having easy to find content. 
if you're a startup company, what's the most important content to develop to give yourself a fighting chance? That research, just so you know, Mark, came from Google, uh, from their B2B Institute. And so it is real. I didn't make it up. But yes, people do 12 steps. And then part of the reason why, contextually, is that they are probably spending a lot of money, right? And they're spending other people's money, not necessarily their money. And so they want to make sure that it is the right choice. They're doing research where they are looking at the company's Instagram. They're looking at the employees' profiles, especially the sales employees in a lot of cases. They're looking at those profiles. They're going to the website, they're reading reviews, they're looking maybe at product videos, they are signing up for newsletters, then they're clicking on links in newsletters, et cetera, et cetera. The most important thing I think for most organizations, most companies is that they have help-based content. That their content is, here's how we can help. Here's how we can help alleviate your pain or achieve your goal or whatever. Companies that do that, that really focus their content on how they help, and sometimes that's educational, sometimes that's about ease of use, sometimes that's expert third-party content, sometimes it's video, sometimes it's written, sometimes it's experiential. Like sometimes the content is like an online configurator, right? Because that's the most helpful thing that you can offer people. Um, but but companies that do that and don't focus necessarily on like product specs or like one pagers get the best and most efficient return on their marketing communication spend. Everyone wants to hear your opinion on what works best and doesn't work best for B2C and B2B. And you started talking a little bit about this. Since, uh, since let's run through some of the marketing tactics channels such as Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, Pin, uh, Pinterest, Twitter. I'm exhausted just you know with the number of <laughs> things so that are out there in discourse. So... Um, so talk about that law. Yeah. Facebook is very good. Um, if your audience is a little older, I'm going to say over 45, over 50. Um, if your audience is there to look at things related to their personal lives, right? They're there to understand what their family is doing, what their grandkids are doing, what their old friends from college are doing. And so when you're addressing kind of that personal interest or hobby or, um, you know, just personal happiness in a way, like that tends to do pretty well on Facebook. The other thing I'll say about Facebook is that it is brilliant for retargeting. And retargeting is the idea that somebody sees you, they go to your website, and then you follow them around the internet. Um, I think it's still 70% of US adults use Facebook, and most of them use it every day. And oh, so, yeah. If you, yeah, if you think about Facebook as your as primarily a retargeting platform, you're going to do better. Um, we also find that for nonprofits, that Facebook can be a very effective fundraising channel, that people can raise money uh, through Facebook, or at least... And this is another thing that we say, like Facebook can be great for collecting email addresses that you're not necessarily going to get that donation on Facebook, but you're going to collect that email address through some sort of campaign. And then you're going to use email in order to go ahead and like get that donation or get that sale. So email collection, it's also very good for that. Um, Instagram tends to be really good for anything related to like food or travel or fashion. It's also a very good channel to communicate your employee culture, um, especially younger employees will go to Instagram to see like, what's your company like? And what are the people there like? And what are their pets like? And what do they like to eat? And so Instagram is great for that. It also, because it's owned by Facebook, has great retargeting functionality. You can follow people around the internet there. Um, LinkedIn is, is a B2B channel, right? Like you're going to buy or sell or look for employees or look for investors. LinkedIn is the place to be. For Pinterest, and I love Pinterest for a lot of reasons. Um, one, it, well, it is the platform where the average household income is the highest. So if you're looking for an affluent audience, and it also is primarily female, if you're looking for a female affluent audience and like that's who you want to sell to, Pinterest is where, where you should be. It's great for life events. So weddings, baby showers, bridal showers, kids' birthday parties, anniversary parties, like Pinterest is wonderful for that. It's also great for home decor. It's great for um, food, wine, alcohol, those recipes, all of that. And it can be a tremendous driver of traffic to your website. And while Instagram will not and hardly ever drives traffic to your website and Facebook may or may not, Pinterest certainly will drive traffic. 
Um, TikTok, a lot of people are asking about TikTok. Oh, yeah. Uh, right? TikTok is very much about brand exploration and brand loyalty and user-generated content. So if you're looking for advocate attention, um, TikTok, a TikTok strategy may make sense for you. People think that TikTok is a younger audience. And yes, a lot of younger people are on it, but it is it has really become a mainstream where you've got people of all different ages, ages, your grandmother might be on TikTok. And so we're going to see that audience continue to grow and climb. That's an area where you want to have people creating TikToks about your products and services and the fact that they love it. And also areas where like you're creating a lot of awareness because discoverability on TikTok is what it's all about. If you are making the right videos, people will discover you. Um, you got to know the algorithm. You got to know what the right video is, but that will certainly happen. Which I ones? Tell you, there are addictions. There are yeah. addictions like reels. I, I started watching reels on Facebook. I could be like an hour on reels. Oh uh, yes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Mark, like you're not 14, right? Yeah. Like, no, a lot of people, because of the nature of the algorithm, do get addicted to it. And so think about that for your brand. Um, at our social media day conference recently, uh, somebody was asked, like, what brands should be on TikTok? And the answer from the speaker was, all brands, all brands should be on TikTok. Now, that said, let me put in a caveat here that's really important. TikTok is a people-centric algorithm. You will have a much better and more successful TikTok presence if you have a person in your videos and if it is the same person and if it is a um, compelling person, right? Like all of that is critical. So if you're a brand and you don't have a person that you can put on your TikTok, then you are not going to have a successful TikTok. I mean, I guess that goes back forever when you have a brand spokesperson, you know, the guy who does State Farm or the woman who does Progressive, I guess it is. Yeah, flow. Yeah, flow. And everybody knows them. They they become celebrities and make a lot of money themselves. They're like million dollar a year pitch people because they're so synonymous with the brand. Yeah. Uh, so I, yeah, I, and for sure that absolutely has to happen. Mm -hmm. So when launching a new product and service, how much money should you budget? And are the initial and what are the initial tactics you should use? Mark, that is an impossible question to answer, but I'll give you some guidelines. Um, I'll tell you big, big products, um, Coke, Pepsi's of the world, they will dedicate 10% um, of their projected sales to marketing. Sometimes it's even higher. It can be as high as 30% of their projected sales into their marketing effort in order to launch a new product. I mean, for a startup, I guess you're looking at what tactics make the most sense and what the costs are going to be, right? That's right. And like, be realistic. Nobody knows you exist. It costs money and time to make people know that you exist. It is not going to happen for free. But let's say that you're in, in an industry where you're going to rely mostly on referrals initially, or where you need to go out and get those strategic partners. For instance, if you have a biotech startup, chances are you will never be profitable, right? Or you might never even be net revenue positive. You need to go out and market to the bigger pharmaceutical companies because your hope is to do something together with them and eventually get bought by them. So that's a, that's a small target market. And the way that those people get news information or learn about new biotechs may be affordable. Like it may be something that like, oh yeah, I just need to go to these three conferences per year. And I need to really invest in having a great presence in that at that conference, or I need to invest in flying 10 of my people there so that we are a force to be reckoned with. Like that might be your strategy. And then you can build your budget based on that. If you're launching a new consumer product and you're like, oh, well, I need to have millions of impressions because I need millions of people to know that I exist in the first 30 days, then there's ways to do that where you look at competitors and you can more or less like figure out what they're spending on their social ads, but know that you're going to have to put a lot of money into social ads. You're going to have to invest in content, really compelling video content. And so the best thing to do is to go out, talk to some people who have worked with your competitors or your aspirational competitors, see how much it costs, and then put your budget together that way. Well, what does it require? Why does it require 11 to 13 impressions to get people to notice you? I saw read that in the book. Mark, as we've been sitting here on this call, my phone has gotten a whole bunch of text messages, a whole bunch of Facebook updates, a whole bunch of LinkedIn updates, Apple news, something, something, right? Like 
our attention is being drawn in so many different directions all of the time that it's hard for us to keep anything really in our heads. And I think a lot of us have experienced this, this overwhelm of so many things coming at us at any given time. And so to really break through, and this is research that we've seen um, from third parties, as well as through Facebook, is that you need, you need to show up a lot of times before people are like, oh, I have a recognition for that. I've seen that before. I know what that is. That is relevant to me. And, and it really takes that many times. It used to be five to seven. Five to seven used to be the number when we didn't have a million different things yelling at us all day, every day. But but because we do now, those numbers have gone up. Uh, what is connected attention and what are the best tactics to use? Uh, and if you can give some examples. Yeah, connected attention is where people say, I want to know more. Like I'm willing to invest a little bit, a little bit into you and your company. So connected attention can look like somebody following you on LinkedIn or connecting with you on LinkedIn. It could look like somebody following you on Instagram, right? Really following you on any of the social channels. They're making a connection. It can also look like somebody giving you their email address, like signing up for a contest or a promotion or a giveaway or that 10% coupon, right, Mark? The first time that you hit the website. Yeah, all gives me that, I'm doing it. Right, that is a point of connection. And so connected attention is like, this is interesting. I want to know more. You're willing to offer me something. I kind of want to like figure out if maybe I want to take it, but I'm not ready to like become part of the company and the future growth and success of it. We love connected attention. And part of the reason why is because it's super measurable, right? Like you can measure very easily how much connected attention that you have. And if you really focus on getting more connected attention, it then sets you up for success with more engagement and more um, converted attention. One of the mistakes that we see people make all of the time when we ask them about what type of attention do you want, they go right away to converted. I want converted. Like, okay, and I want, you know, a house on, I want a house like overlooking, you know, the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Great, awesome. Like we all have wants and needs. But People don't work that way. None of us work that way. We don't just say, okay, I'm gonna buy. I'm gonna buy today. I'm gonna make this $100,000 investment right now today. We don't do it. And so to overlook the rest and to like not put in the work, not do the push-ups, right? Like not do that hard work to like really get people and convince people to get to converted, like that's a big mistake. And so, yes, we wanna have awareness and awareness is great, but connected attention is where we start to see that like, okay, there's a future possibility of converted. Emails are valuable uh, and you can buy lists and write to people, but that often pisses people off because they don't know you. Yeah. Uh, what's the what's the best way to do that? We are 100% anti-buying list for those reasons that you said, Mark, and also because it ends up being a giant waste of money. So what we want to do is find a regular ongoing way to collect email addresses based on our audience, what we know about them and where we meet them. We want to go to those places that we can meet them and then get them to give us their email addresses, usually for an exchange of value, where we say, hey, if you give us this, we'll give you that. Or And a lot of times, like that doesn't have to be a financial exchange of value. It doesn't have to be that 10% coupon, though that works really well. It can be an exchange of value of like, oh, you want this piece, you want this white paper I wrote, or this ebook that I wrote, or you want this piece of information, or you want to come to this webinar, you want to come to this podcast, right? Like there's always an exchange of value because an email address is valuable. And when somebody says, okay, I'm going to give it to you, that is an initial indication of trust. It is an initial indication of interest, and it's an an initial indication that there's like a relevancy there, that these aren't just like random people that are never going to become converted, that there are people who like that, that your product, your service, your company is relevant to them. And so the more you can connect with and generate email addresses based on relevancy and on a fair exchange of value... The better that email list is going to be and the better you're going to get value in return, you're going to get a better ROI on that email address. Uh, What do you need to do to engage attention and who's done that well? Yeah, so engaged is all about conversation right? Like the people who are doing it the best are the people who get a lot of comments, who get a lot of feedback, who get a lot of um, testimonials, who get a lot of positive reviews. Uh, The people who are getting, you know, people talking, like 
actively, proactively, or reactively talking about their products and services in a positive way, of course, right? But even in, in a way that's um, that's constructive, constructive feedback is really valuable. And so you look at some of the big brands out there that are the best at online and social customer service, they're doing re a really great job. Um, but anybody who's like, yeah, let's talk, let's talk. People who are talking and using their social channels in first person tend to get better engagement. Uh, people who are asking for feedback and companies that are asking for feedback are also getting it. One of the worst things that companies can do is not have an organic community development plan in place. And what I mean there is we were working with this company, franchise company, and they had had a social agency for years. We took over the account and we opened up their uh, Instagram inbox. And there were thousands of unanswered messages. Oh, shoot. Thousands. So people were trying to talk to them and they were not talking back. That will immediately shut down any sort of engagement. It was the biggest, it's the single biggest social media mistake they were making. And the same is true for a lot of companies who aren't listening for people who are talking about them, not responding to people who are mentioning them, right? Like not, and, and startups and small companies in particular are like really bad at this. These people want to connect with you. They want to engage with you and you are completely ghosting them, right? Like if there's one thing that you need to change, it's that like right now today. And so, so in terms of engagement, people who are actively out there, like asking for feedback and talking with people. And even for instance, like if I sell hamburgers and I see somebody who posts like, oh man, I really want a hamburger today. And they're in my area. And I write to them and I'm like, Hey, come on in, by the way, I'm going to give you a soda for free or the fries are on us. Right? Like those sort of companies are the ones that invite engagement through their behaviors and end up getting more of it. Oh yeah. I, and I see them do it really, really well. You, you write about advocacy and that you can buy or earn it. Please explain the difference. And I'm really curious about how effective paid influencers are today, mm. uh, because I've seen research studies that question that. And paid uh, speaks about people who have been around, you know, that's been around for a hundred years. Yeah. What kind of sway do they really hold? And are, are they really worth the money today? Yeah. So first, let me say that there are three we categorize three different groups of influencers. You have macro influencers, right? These are the people whose job it is to be an influencer. They have millions of followers. Think of the Kim Kardashian types, right? Like macro influencers. Then you have micro influencers. And these are people who maybe have like, you know, somewhere between 50 and 500,000 followers. And they still have their jobs, right? But they kind of have this influencer thing that they do as a side hustle. And like people pay them sometimes to spend uh, to, to like cover their product or their restaurant or their hotel or whatever. And then you have um, nano influencers. And these are people who have very small followings, but their followings are very committed. And what the research shows us is that when you engage nano influencers in particular, you tend to get better ROI because people trust them, right? They trust them because it's smaller, it's more intimate, it's more community focused. Um, if you can also get micro influencers who love your product, it can generate pretty good ROI. Sometimes if you pay them a little bit, or if you give them something free, or you give them an exchange of value, like you give them um, a night at your hotel or a free meal at your restaurant, you can still see pretty good ROI. Um, what the research has shown us is that unless you're very specific brands or very specific companies that you are already like huge and well-known, um, uh, macro influencers will not return value for you. There's this great story and I forget the name of the influencer, but they had been paid to wear this very particular t-shirt. Um, and the, t the brand ended up selling three t-shirts, three t-shirts after a hundred thousand dollar investment in this wow. influencer. Yeah. Cause people saw it and they're like, well, it's a t-shirt, right? Like, yeah, they're wearing it, but they're being paid to wear it. So like, it's a t-shirt. It's not something that I really want or need. And so as you're, like as you're putting together your influencer plan, you need to think about like your audience. Is it about micro, macro, or nano? Who are the people that you want to reach through this influencer? 
does this influencer have a love for your product or could they have a love for your product? And then are they willing to exchange value with one way or another? I've also heard from a lot of um, micro and nano influencers that what they're most interested in is some creative control. So you really have to approach it as a collaboration where you say to them, like, listen, this is what we're hoping to achieve. How would you go about that? Or how would you think about that? Because they started doing this not for money, but for fun, for creative expression, for like telling the world who they are. And when you take that away and say, I want you to do this exact post on this exact day for this exact amount of money, you actually lose what makes them special and you lose their buy-in to like it being successful. They want to show you that they've been successful. They want to show that they've made an impact on your brand. And so that's the way that that we found is one of the best practices to approach working with those individuals. How much should you expect? And I like the idea of the macro and nano. Uh, How much should you, you know, because they're very targeted. Uh, and people tend to believe in more than Kim Kardashian saying something, and there's you know 73 million. Yeah. How much? How much should you be budgeting for something like that? Yeah, that's another. It depends. Question. However, you know, yeah, you can find influencers who will do something for five hundred dollars. You can, you know, one post or a series of three posts. If you have something that they really want to trade, um, you just really budget for trade, right? And that puts everybody in a better position. Um, But, you know, it might be something $1,500, but a couple hundred bucks, right? More or less uh, would be the thing to think about. Now, the thing that most people overlook when they do their influencer budgeting is that somebody actually has to like manage that. Like you have to pay a person who's going to vet those influencers to make sure that they haven't written anything crazy on their Twitter. That right. That was right. my next question. Yeah. 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 Somebody has to vet them. Like you need to research them. That takes time. Somebody needs to design the influencer program, set goals, set boundaries, understand the potential objections, right? Like somebody has to design that, that program. Then somebody has to manage the execution with the influencer to say, you promised us this, we got this and this, but not that we need to follow up with you to get it. And then that person also has to like do the reporting that says like this influencer generated this many impressions, but this one generated that many sales, right? So there's like technology and tools and infrastructure that need to go into your influencer program so that you know what was actually returned. And, and so all of that requires time and money, and you need to consider that in your budgeting. We have a question from the audience. What do you think of LinkedIn Sales Navigator as a way to find your target customer persona? I love, I love Sales Navigator. I'm a big fan of Sales Navigator. We use it all the time. It is a great research tool. Absolutely. It can also be a great one-to-one B2B outreach tool. So big fan of it. I think, though, it is something that you need to do consistently. Um, you can't just use LinkedIn Sales Navigator once, send out a whole bunch of spammy messages, and then like never follow up with anybody. That is a disaster. So like an influencer program, you actually need to design a sales navigator program. What is your first outreach email going to look like? Your second, your third, your fourth, your follow-up? When do you push them to your email, like for email communications instead? But yes, it can be a great tool for research and a great tool for creating awareness. And connected attention once they click connect and engaged attention once they agree to a conversation with you. So using it well, you can actually accomplish all three types of attention. I thought this was great. What are the, uh, uh, the section on building an internal marketing team was funny. I thought that was very funny. It sounded like you, but sad as many companies have little respect or understanding of the value of marketing and how it makes sales teams job easier especially when salespeople are running the marketing department. What do you recommend in terms of determining what and who uh, you need along with the right skills? Or are you better uh, just outsourcing this function, especially if you don't have a big marketing budget? And what's the biggest mistake CEOs make when hiring a marketing leader? Mm. So the most important thing in a marketing leader is that they need to know the audience. I sound like a broken record, but a lot of times salespeople actually don't even think about their audience all that well and don't know it well. They haven't done the research. They haven't really done personas. They are very much either hunters or gatherers, right? Like they're out there saying like, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to go. Like they don't really think about 
how people get news and information, what's compelling to them, what they want to hear, et cetera. And if they do, they do it just for them. They don't do it across the organization. They don't necessarily do it across teams. So there's a lot of funneling that happens with sales. And Mark, I do sales, right? I do sales for our agency. Yeah, and, of course. And so I know, right? Like I know some of these mistakes that I've made and some of these pitfalls that I've fallen into as it relates to marketing for the agency because I also lead sales. Um, but the, the marketing people need to know the audience they also need to be people who are committed to learning. They need to be the ones who are like, I'm constant, like my audience is changing. They need to be incredibly comfortable with change because audiences are always changing. Products are always changing. Services are like employees are always changing. It's all changing all the time. So they need to be people who are comfortable with change and learning and know the audiences. And they also need to be somebody who believes in accountability right? Who says like, okay, well, I'm going to go spend this money, but I'm going to spend it to learn this, or I'm going to spend it to achieve this. And so they need to be giving regular reports and data and information back into their CEOs, back into their sales teams. And they just need to be comfortable with that, with that data orientation. We talk about how the best marketing leaders have table-shaped minds. So they very much are good on the left brain. They're very much good on the right brain, right? They are creative professionals who are also focused focused on data analytics and the tabletop, the thing that connects the two needs to be strategy. So as you're interviewing for a marketing lead, look for a table-shaped mind, somebody who brings all of those things to the conversation. Yeah. And so many companies, especially if they're driven by sales leaders, uh, just don't, they've so discounted the value of marketing and only to their detriment. Uh, tell us how partners and suppliers fit into building your brand and how you should engage them. So there are lots and lots of different marketing tactics. I mean, we have a, a infographic. I think it's on our website. If not, I'll, I'll send it around. But there are dozens of different marketing tactics. You have social and email and SEO and your website and your billboard and your brochure and your conferences and your brand. Like there's so many things, right, that could go into marketing, but you can't do them all. Nobody can. Nobody can do everything very well, especially if you're a startup or a small business. And so you really got to focus on like, what are the marketing tactics that are my tent poles that are going to best connect with my audience that are absolutely critical that I cannot live without. And so what we find is that companies who have the best marketing departments hire people based on those tent poles. They say, SEO is my most important thing, or email is my most important thing, or conferences are my most important thing. And so they hire full-time people to really manage and focus on that. And then they hire agencies or partners or freelancers or whatever to kind of work on the secondary things to say like, oh yes, PR is still really important to me. Email is still really important to me, but it's not like absolutely mission critical for my marketing plan. So I'm going to look to a partner or an agency to bring that to me. Now, there are organizations where the CEO is just completely uncomfortable managing marketing, managing a marketing director or CMO or whatever. And in those cases, we do recommend bringing in a fractional CMO, right? Like somebody who is CMO for your company and a couple others as well, who's going to hire uh, your agencies or your freelancers, who's going to manage them for you. I mean, I have a fractional CFO in my business who like does my bookkeeping and billing and all of that sort of stuff. And it works great. And the same thing can be true for, for some marketing organizations. I think you also have to be kind of careful about the CMO you hire because a lot of times, um, especially our companies are so data-driven that they always want to hire CMOs who are uh, quantitative mm. and therefore they kind of lack imagination. Yeah, they do, right? And that's where they've missed the one part of the brain, the creative part of the brain. The other thing that I'll say as it relates to hiring a CMO is that the first time you do it, you will, you'll do it wrong. You just will, right? Like pretty much any position that you hire for the first time, you don't really know what you want. They don't really like know what you want. There's no real true meeting in the mind. So just know that like the first one is going to be wrong. And think about like, what do you really want to get out of that first one? Like, do you want to see how that function works within your company? Do you really want somebody who's going to try some stuff that the second person can learn from? Um, and, and just know that. The other thing is that in the Fortune 500, CMOs turn over every 18 months. They're constantly coming and going um, for a lot of different reasons, right? So just also recognize that, that like if you have a couple of CMOs that don't work out. You're not alone. Fortune 500s are experiencing that as well. 
marketing is something that that is a lot about feel as well as about data. So what do you think is the fair way to measure success? Because you can get lots of publicity, hits to your website, but a few sales because the product might be priced too high or other competitors could have more options or services for a similar price. I mean, marketing can only do so much. Yes. Uh, so what's your take on that? Thank you, Mark. That is 100% true, right? As a marketer, my job is not to sell. That's why you have salespeople, right? Their job is to sell. Their job is to close business. Now, the way that that sales happen in different organizations is absolutely different. And marketing can play different roles within that, depending on what the sales process is like. But what we like to do is really measure the five types of attention and make sure that those types are all growing over time, right? If you're a marketer and you're saying like, my awareness is growing, my connected attention, my engaged attention, um, my conversions are growing, right? Or my advocacy attention, or even if like three out of the five are growing, then you're making progress as a marketer. You're showing that like, hey, yeah, this is working, this is happening. And the other thing that we see is that your focus might need to change from time to time. You might have a ton of awareness. Like you had to do awareness first because you didn't have any, nobody knew that you existed. So you spend your first 18 months just really focused on awareness. Anything else that comes out, any of those other types of attention, awesome. But it's really about attention, right? And then you might say, oh my gosh, tons of people know that we exist, but like nobody's really engaging. Like we have this huge audience, but nobody's talking to us. And you might say, okay, now we really need to shift to that. Or like the other types might be working really well and like you're in a flow and you're in a process, but you don't have any advocates. Nobody's talking about how great you are. So you might want to focus on advocate attention and really growing that over time. So one, measure all five types, show that you're making growth and progress and learning across the five types, and then hone in on the ones that are going to make the biggest difference for the business. You could also hone in on the different audiences that are going to make the biggest difference. So you might start with clients and customers for your first 12 to 18 months. And then you say, oh my gosh, we have so much demand. We really need to go after employees. And so while our awareness with customers is high, our awareness with employees is not. And so we want to measure those segmented audiences differently on our dashboard to show that to our CEO or our leadership team over time. I just went a little bit in the weeds, Mark, in terms of data and analytics. No, and but, but it shows yeah. the complexity. I mean, people don't realize yeah. the complexity for marketing has you know, grown exponentially. And like you said throughout this interview, there's so many things grabbing your attention that as a marketer, it's infinitely harder. You know, back in the days, you know, when I was a kid and Bob Hope was selling some product, people said, oh, I love Bob Hope. I love the product. And there were only three major networks and PBS. And there was just the, the, you know, the major magazines like Life and Newsweek and Time. And then you had your local paper, but now you're bombarded with information from so many different places, things you've never even heard of, things that didn't even exist years ago, and now they're major players, and the majors are no longer majors. So yeah. it's it's super complicated. Here's my, um, I guess my last question for you, and then you can also give us, you know, your last thoughts. But you write that emotional intelligence is critical when asking the right questions to the right people at the right time. Mm-hmm. Please explain what you mean and give an example. As marketers, a lot of times our primary audience are internal audiences, our leadership team, our CEO, et cetera. And marketing is something that a lot of people think they know, but really don't and don't understand the complexity of it. So if you go in to talk to your CEO about the new marketing strategy, or if you go in to talk to the product lead about the new product, and they've had a frustrating day, or they're pissed off about something, or something hasn't gone the way that they wanted it to, or the investors aren't investing at the level that they want to, that is not a good time to talk about marketing strategy, because they are not in a creative, constructive mindset in which they can collaborate with you and build something and grow something together. Um, And so understanding that, right, like how you ask the question and when you ask the question makes a huge difference. Um, I have a good friend who says that no good decisions are ever made on an empty stomach. So maybe don't have that 11.30 a.m. meeting with your CEO who's been in since seven and has a one o'clock lunch. Don't do it. It doesn't make sense, right? Like set set, set yourself up for success where you're getting people at a time of day where where they are going to be their most creative. 
And another great tip, Mark, is bring candy or caffeine, right? Like some sort of treat that energizes them and gets them excited and helps them focus because you're going to get, or maybe fruit, right? If your CEO is a health nut, but read the room, understand them so that you can put them in a place of creativity and constructiveness and strategic thinking. You're going to have much, much better success in your marketing role. Cass, thank you so much. This was really enjoyable. I can tell people got a lot out of it. Uh, and next week, we we're not going to be on because next week is Labor Day weekend. And so um, we know everybody also needs a break like we need a break because we're reading over 50 books a year here. Uh, and that's been great. And you were terrific. And I hope people will buy your book uh, and enjoy it and be calling you to engage you to help them out. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate it. I love talking about this. I love the questions you prepared. Um, and it was a lot of fun. Well, enjoy your weekend. Take care and enjoy your new home as well. Thank you. Have a great weekend, everyone. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.